For the week of November 9th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Week in Review. I am joined this week by the founder of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold. Hello, Chris. Hello there. And also by Democratic Party Chair of Washington's 8th Congressional District, Joshua Troopin. Hello, Josh. Good day to you. So this is something brand new that we're trying here on the show, as uh, listeners will note. Um, The format is pretty self-explanatory. We will be talking about the week's national and state news and then just breaking it down as to how it affects us here. I will start by saying that we are recording on November 8th, which is the one-year anniversary of the 2016 election, and we will be discussing that in a moment. But I would rather kick things off with some happy news. Uh, So let's talk about Tuesday night's election, which was just a a great night for Democrats Uh, here at home in the race that everybody was watching Democrat Monka Dingra won her state Senate race in the 45th Legislative District, and this hands control of Olympia and the state over to the Democrats. Woo-hoo! Yeah, I know, right? And also Seattle will be having its first female mayor in almost 90 years. Uh, and then nationally, so much good news. There were exciting wins for Democrats in Georgia and New Jersey. And then in Virginia, we saw wins across the board, including one for Danica Rame, a transgender candidate who defeated the author of that state's bathroom bill. And of course, the big news, Democrat Ralph Northam defeated Ed Gillespie, and he did it by running a largely centrist campaign that pretty actively called out Trump and the politics of divisiveness. And Gillespie, for his part, tried to tie himself to Trump. He ran ads that were racially tinged and appealed to the politics of fear. Strategists on both sides were absolutely ready to read into the results of this race as a model for how races might be won in 2018. So, Josh, as the Democratic chair for the 8th District, what did you take away from Ralph Northam's victory? Well, let me just say, you know, the country, the states and this congressional district, the 8th CD, are really copies of each other. So in the country, you see condensed pockets of blue on the edges, red in the middle. Virginia's made up the same way. Washington's made up the same way. Uh, We're really kind of coalescing and pulling apart as blue and red um, a lot of the time. And still, every race is different. So uh, Northam was kind of centrist, and he voted for Bush a decade ago. But his platform wasn't terrible. Uh, He talked about $15 minimum wage and improved health care access protecting women's health access, LGBTQ rights, two years of free college, and a lot of things that are, you know, at home in today's Democratic Party. And a lot of other candidates, even to the left of Northam, won big as well. So Lee Carter, who's a Democratic Socialist, actually won a race that no one expected him to win in Manassas, Virginia. Larry Krasner, who's a Black Lives Matter lawyer, won for DA in Philadelphia. Now, with in Virginia, I would have probably per, preferred uh, Perello in Virginia, but this is still a really good sign. Uh, we tend to take the message that in order to beat Republicans, you have to be more conservative. But Northam ran on a platform that I think would have been at home in the 2016 Democratic primaries, and he got close to blowout levels in the so-called Swing state. So, you know, I think that after all the talk about troubles within the Democratic Party and, you know, I could do an entire show talking about the national (laughs) issues, right? Voters in Virginia turned out for a candidate running on issues that address their day to day needs. And they saw on the other side, Gillespie running on fear and reactionaryism 
gangs are coming to kill you, save the Confederates. Right. And they're going to keep doing that as long as they keep shedding the few remaining policies we have. And, you know, even right here, you look at Jin Young England's campaign. She basically ran a campaign that was about punching hippies. And <laughs> her, her district swung about 15 points away from her versus 2014. Yeah, well, so, I mean, let's go ahead and bring this on back home because, you know, Virginia isn't Washington, but as you mentioned, there are similarities. Uh, Virginia is a purple state. Uh, the 8th District is a purple district. It, for you, as the Democratic chair for the 8th District, is Northam's victory instructive as to how a Democrat might win in your district? Uh, I think that his victory does give us some hope and something to look forward to, but we still need to close the deal. And I think that we do that if we have honest and believable candidates who talk about voters' needs. And the Democrats who are running right now in the 8th share those traits. And I think that um, hopefully we will see it's not just that Trump's name is mud, even though it is, um, but progressives are energized with groups like Indivisible keeping up pressure. Um, what we saw in Virginia especially was really interesting to watch. And I think that it not only speaks to how we could do in the 8th Congressional next year, but I think that we can pick up some seats here in Washington. Uh, the last time we had a big um, election like this was in 2006 when we gained six state Senate and seven state House seats. And since about 2000, there haven't been very many big swings. Yeah. And one other factor that not everyone knows about is that Virginia went from hackable electronic voting machines to all paper ballots in 2017. Excellent. Maybe we can get the country to follow suit. Yeah. Right. It's just a lot harder to flip a few votes in each precinct when they're all paper ballots. Right. Right, right, right. Well, so you mentioned uh, the role of groups like Indivisible. So, Chris, let's bring you in. So from an activist standpoint, what did you take away from Tuesday's election? I was just so heartened by the diversity of the candidates and the winners. Uh, that is just amazing and energizing. Um, it, I realized, and I think a lot of people did, that the resistance is real and it's working. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the activist work that we're doing actually does translate to electoral politics it's not just defensive in nature we can work on the offense and i just i woke up this morning thinking you trump rubber stampers in congress look out yeah that's what i thought absolutely well so then moving forward in terms of what you have planned stretching out to 2018 are the Democratic wins of Tuesday night going to inform the work that you're planning on doing moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been working on our strategy and we were kind of waiting to put the pieces, the last pieces of the puzzle um, into it, after, you know, until after this election. So it's going to it's going to play a big part in what in our thinking. And um, I think that what we see is when we lean in, we can win, you know, and the grassroots uh, efforts are so important. Uh, and we've been working a lot on the defense, but we're going to switch to some offensive tactics here and, and try to win some of these races. The Democratic, quote unquote, enthusiasm, it really is out there despite what's going on in the party. And hopefully that will begin to heal as we get some more of these wins under our belt. Um, but we're just going to we're just going to work for the candidates who align with our values, um, no matter what 
their affiliation is, although, you know, they're going to be progressives. Um, and we'll work to identify, you know, more first-time candidates and get them to step forward from within our ranks. Well, you know, you, you talk about this uh, in, in terms of it creating some momentum. And I was struck that last night was the first race that we have seen in the year since the 2016 election that wasn't a special election to fill a vacancy left by a Trump appointee. Um, and I think that matters on a very substantive level. A lot of the races that were run to replace the Trump appointees were seen as Pyrrhic victories. Uh, Democrats uh, in Montana, Kansas, and Georgia all lost, but by much smaller margins than what we've seen in the past. Uh, last night was a general election, and it overwhelmingly went for the Democrats. Is that something that's noteworthy for you, Josh? Well, I I think it absolutely is, considering that Democrats have a history of disappearing when it's not a presidential election year. And we saw pretty much the opposite of that in many of these races last night, uh, where basically the turnout uh, was up. In many cases in Virginia, it was enough to actually overwhelm the gerrymandering that had previously been performed on the state. Uh, So just I can't stop thinking about Virginia. They had a two-thirds Republican House of Delegates, 66 to 34, and now it looks like it's 50-50, if not 51 Democrats. I will tell you right now, because I just heard from her, Julia Tanner was on the show uh, talking about this very thing, and she is an indivisible member. She's part of an indivisible affiliated group in Virginia, uh, in Arlington, just outside of D.C. And uh, the count is right now that in the House of Delegates race, they won back 16 seats. So it will, as it stands now, it's currently 49 to 50 Republicans. And there uh, four of the races were so close that they will be contested and recounted. So stay tuned there. Yeah, it's really exciting. And the other thing that is worth noting is that uh, Danica Reem, uh, who's the transgender candidate who beat the Neanderthal. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, good word. You know, she, you know, she didn't necessarily run on being transgender. She ran on infrastructure issues. He ran on transgender and lost because he was on the wrong side of it. Um, I'm a big fan of winning on policy and just taking care of your own campaign and not being distracted by all these side issues, which is how she won. Well, let me, actually, then let me ask uh, you this. And Chris, you, you probably have some thoughts on this. Uh, Ralph Northam absolutely ran against Trump. And in the past, we have seen that in particular in the 2004 uh, election, the presidential election, Kerry largely ran on an anti-Bush platform and lost. Do you think this time around that the vitriol against Trump, the energy against Trump is so great that running against Trump is is a it's a winning platform? I think it's definitely a factor, at least for now. I know I don't know how long, you know, we'll we'll be able to continue with this because people are craving uh, something positive. They're, they're trying to find the light wherever they can. And, uh, I, but I think it's definitely a factor now. Yeah. All right, you guys, let's shift over and talk about our one year of Trump. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, we are recording this show on an ignominious date, which is November 8th. This is the uh, the one year anniversary of the election of Trump, uh, a Trump anniversary. Uh, what's the appropriate gift? Uh, oh, I know a Democratic <laughs> win across the country. That's a perfect gift for your Trump anniversary. <laughs> 
How about a Trump Trump voodoo doll? Oh, that's even better. All right, yeah. Somebody, <laughs> uh, if if somebody's listening who does uh, any sort of merchandising, get right on that. So Esquire magazine just published an oral history of November eighth, twenty sixteen, and all the things that led up to that. And so I thought the three of us could maybe start our own little oral history. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Tell us what you remember about that night a year ago. Uh, well, it was a windy, dark night, not dissimilar to this here in the Seattle it area. It was. And, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just remember watching the returns, you know, just with tears in my eyes. And just like, even though that I wasn't really surprised, just a sense of disbelief and horror. And it began my my mourning phase that lasted, well, it's still going on. <laughs> mm, yeah. Josh, how about you? Where were you on election night a year ago? Well, uh, one year ago on election night, I was at the 5th Legislative District election party in Snoqualmie. Everyone in the room is pretty optimistic. Uh, we had three local races we were hoping to win. Uh, Jason Ritchie, Darcy Burner, and Mark Mullet. And as I think everyone experienced, things got quieter and then more nervous and then depressive through the evening. And uh, the races weren't called while we were still there because they just kept dragging on. I got home later and kept watching the results come in. And, you know, I was really focusing on local races. But I, I guess I was amazed that people would actually vote for Trump. And in the days after that, I would walk around and look at people and wonder, yeah. did you vote for Trump? <laughs> What's wrong with you? And I still kind of do that depending on where I am. Yeah. Um, Some people but, wear it on their bodies or trucks or the like. Right. Yeah, they're easier to spot. Yeah. But one interesting thing. Um, so we left the party that night and Jason was ahead by a few votes and Darcy was only behind by a few votes. And we expected that late ballots would swing our way because that tends to be the pattern in Washington state. Um, Democrats tend to vote later. But over the next few days, they didn't go our way. And when the ballots were coming in, they were lopsided in favor of Republicans. And it turns out that that started to swing on the day that Comey released his letter. And people in Washington already had their ballots, but that affected not just the presidential race, but local races. Wow. Uh, there's a trickle-down effect, and there was this group of Republicans who had not voted in several cycles, but they started filling out their whole ballot and sending it in starting the day of the Comey letter. Wow. Uh, trickle down is, is it's never a good yeah. thing. Yeah. I, for my part, I will say that uh, my mom, Jan Cox, who is an indivisible member and an avid listener of the show. Hi, mom. Uh, she brought over a bottle of champagne uh, on election night a year ago that she and my wife, Lori, and I were all planning on drinking when you know, to toast our very first female president. And that bottle of champagne is still sitting in our liquor fridge. Uh, but I'm thinking about opening it now. So let's do it. <laughs> Maybe I'll open it while we're recording here. So uh, anyway, here we are a year hence. Um, I'll just ask you both. Has this year been every bit as bad as you have feared that it would be? Has it been worse? Have there been any any real surprises, good or bad, Chris? Uh, I think it's been actually a lot worse than I expected. I mean, I, I knew legislatively we'd be in some trouble. I was worried about the Supreme Court and that came to be. Um, but I did not expect uh, the attacks on our institutions like the State Department, the media, the National Monuments, just to name a very few. Mm. Um, he he didn't get presidential, as a lot of us were 
hoping in vain that he would, you know, with the ridiculous t- attacks on the NFL and pulling out of the Paris Agreement and almost incite- inciting nuclear war with North Korea. There's been uh, so many things that have been so bad. And then I've never feared for my country more than when he fired Comey. I mean, I just, I thought I was just beside myself that day. Um, so a lot of in a lot of ways, it's been a lot worse. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I should ask on the flip side, have there been any upsides, any any good parts? Yeah. Yes. Especially, you know, as I've gotten involved uh, with all this activism work with Indivisible, uh, I've met so many amazing people that I wouldn't have ever known if not for this. Uh, you find people included. Um, I've witnessed some incredible bravery among just ordinary citizens. I mean, going to a a protest or calling your congressman isn't something that a lot of people would have done, you know, a year ago. Um, And, you know, in some of these ways, my hope in humanity has been restored, and especially after this this most recent election and after uh, we we brought down the ACA repeal and we're set to do it again with this tax reform legislation. And we will get to that in just a second, uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I really want to dig into that. Uh, Josh, the good, the bad, the ugly, what are your thoughts of the last year? Well, I would first reiterate what Chris said, that it's pretty bad. Um, you know, Trump is talking about draining the swamp, but he's basically just swapped the swamp for his own swamp. <laughs> um, the good news is that he's been exposed as just a terrible negotiator and a terrible influencer. What do you um, mean? He's the art of the deal. Come on. <laughs> you know, you have control of all the branches in Washington, and you can't get your ACA repeal through Congress. Um you're, you're creating legislation and springing it for immediate votes, and that's not working out for them. They're having the same problem with the tax plan right now. And you know, I think Indivisible and uh, other grassroots groups have really spooked them as well. Congress right now is skittish. You know, it's turned into not an easy job. You've got donors telling you you're not going to see another penny unless you end their taxes. On the other side, you actually have to answer for your constituents now. They're asking you why you're taking health care away from millions of people. And it's no wonder people like uh, Dave Reichert, you know, have had enough. They thought this was a cushy job, and suddenly it's not. Go figure. You have to answer to your constituents. Who knew that that was part of uh, being an elected official? Uh, I will actually, right. I will actually uh, reiterate what Chris said, uh, that one of the silver linings in this is that I've gotten to meet and work with some incredible people, absolutely including the both of you. So while I'm sorry for the circumstances, I am very glad that it brought us all together. So let's switch over and talk briefly about the Trump tax plan or uh, hashtag Trump tax scam, which is how Indivisible is referring to it appropriately. Uh, the bill, as we speak, is being marked up in the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, a body that includes uh, Dave Reichert. Uh Josh, I, I want to get your take on the bill generally. I-, I am confident that you are not in favor of it. But what are some of the most egregious aspects of the bill for you, particularly as they affect us here in the state? Oh, you know, where do we start? Um, The first thing I'm interested in is who will get more of a tax cut, the members of Trump's cabinet or everyone in the 8th Congressional District combined. (laughs) Uh, And we really also need to be asking every Republican, what's your plan for paying off our Iraq war debt? Because that is still not being mentioned. So basically, 
you know, the CBO just came out and they said it's going to add $1.7 trillion to our debt over 10 years, and it cuts taxes to the ultra-rich by $1.5 billion. So we need to be sharp on messaging. We just need to say Republicans are going to borrow a trillion dollars from China and give it to Trump and his friends. Um, there are a lot of things in the bill that really will hurt everyone in Washington. It eliminates property tax deductions, state and local tax deductions. Um, you know, any rep from New York or New Jersey who votes for this is never going to be able to show their face again. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope that uh, Republicans in New Jersey, in New York, in California, in other high-earning states, should be Republicans there should be very afraid of this bill. Well, I think everyone should be afraid of this bill. Uh, it eliminates deductions like the moving deduction, the educator expense deduction, but at the same time, no more corporate alter- alternative minimum tax and companies will be able to repatriate their money without taxation. So probably the the most egregious thing to me is that we have set up a blue wall on the West Coast. The tax bill eliminates deductions for earthquake and wildfire damage while keeping deductions for hurricane damage. So that's the bill that Dave Reichert is proud of. We need to be using just bumper sticker phrases like Republicans don't care if you die in a wildfire. Yeah. Uh, and right now we're saying, well, did you know the Tax Cut and Jobs Act could eliminate the educator expense deduction and it's in committee? Just say Republicans want teachers to pay for their own supplies and give the money to Trump's friends. You know, Republicans are going to make it easier for big companies to stop paying tax. They're going to make it easy for companies to hide money overseas and cheat on their taxes. Well, there you go. Those are actually phenomenal talking points, and I hope everybody is listening with uh, – I'll actually just encourage you to roll that back and, and write all that down. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about what your group – and full disclosure, I am a member of that group uh, – what have you and Indivisible Washington's 8th been doing uh, to combat this bill? You've been doing some some cool stuff. Tell us about it. Yeah, so we have a very special responsibility with our member of Congress in that he uh, helped uh, write this thing. Um, And so we're uh, feeling especially uh, responsible for letting him know just how we feel about it. Um, So every day this week, we are delivering giant checks, figure, you know, just picture those uh, publisher, publisher's clearinghouse size checks. We're delivering one of those each day this week uh, to our congressman's office. Um, And it's made out to the top 1%. um, (laughs) And they're, they're varying amounts. Like, I think the first one that we wrote was for one and a half trillion dollars that's going to be paid for by our children and our grandchildren, um, so that the top 1% can have some some extra tax breaks. So that's the stuff we're doing. Uh, We're uh, lighting up his phone lines, um, both um, here in our local office and in D.C., um, and just kind of explaining to him uh, how it's going to affect each one of us. Um, We've all done some back-of-the-napkin math with with the information that's available um, to figure out how it's going to help us. And, you know, we're, we're just really confused about this because he keeps saying... He, meaning Dave Reichert, keeps saying that uh, it's going to help the middle class, but so far no one has has figured out how that math works. Yeah, Reichert has tossed out some numbers on social media that don't exactly uh, hold up to strong scrutiny. So if this bill is defeated, as I know we all hope it will be, it will have extraordinary repercussions for both the GOP Congress and for Trump. Uh, This next part will be pure speculation, but I'm curious to get both of your takes on what each of you think might happen. 
Chris, if the GOP cannot pass this bill, what does it mean going into 2018, which I might add is an election year? Well, what it means is that even though they have control of the Congress and the White House, they have not been able to pass a significant piece of legislation in an entire year. And so they're going to go into 2018, into the second year of Trump's presidency, I hate to say that, um, (laughs) without a a legislative accomplishment. Um, I mean, I'm not minimizing um, the Supreme Court appointment, um, but but there are two things that they wanted to do, which was to take away the Affordable Care Act and to give more money uh, to billionaires uh, through this tax, quote unquote, reform. If both of those things go down, then I'd say they're in a lot of trouble going into the 2018 elections. I would say you're right. And I would also say that it's going to be interesting to see if congressional Republicans and Trump start to turn on each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. Josh, what do you think this means for Democrats if the bill goes down to defeat? Well, I think uh, specifically we've been frustrated over the years when Democrats have had good ideas and they'd perhaps get through the House under Pelosi and then Harry Reid would kind of just shepherd them to their death in the Senate. And we're watching Republicans do the same thing, except they don't have a filibuster to blame. They're killing themselves. I think that every day they can't pass their agenda, they look a bit weaker and we look a bit stronger. Uh, It's going to have an effect not only on donors, because the donors have told the Republicans do this or no more donations. And those are the people they actually serve, the Coke class of billionaire. Um, And we're also, that's going to lead to more contested primaries on the Republican side in 2018. And that's going to use up a lot more of their money, defending their seats as well. So I think that their inability to enact their priorities is absolutely going to hurt them in 2018. But we still have to talk about what we plan to do and how we would do it better. And I think that's really going to be how we get people to come out to vote for us instead of just not coming out to vote. And you will have some candidates who will be talking about those issues in the 8th District. You have some candidate forums coming up. Before we go, uh, can you just tell us quickly about some of those? Uh, Absolutely. So Indivisible Wenatchee and NCW, uh, North Central Washington United, is sponsoring next Wednesday, November 13th, um, a forum at the Kashmir Riverside Center. Um, That's going to be the first of five that we are doing. Uh, And in January, we plan on having one in Sammamish on Wednesday, January 10th. Uh, There's one out in Kittitas County in Ellensburg on January 17th. Uh, We are having the first ever 8th CD candidate forum south of Route 18 on January 31st in Graham, down in Pierce County. And then February 28th, uh, we're planning one in Auburn. And we invite everyone to come on out and meet some of our wonderful candidates and just get to know them. I cannot say enough about what a good bunch of candidates we have running right now. 
Absolutely. All right, you guys. Well, that'll do it for this week. I, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for coming out on our inaugural journey, Chris. Josh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. That'll do it for this week in review for the week of November 9th, 2017. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the show, you can head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and uh, subscribe while you're there. That's a good thing to do. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to Chris Petzold and Josh Troopin, and thanks as always to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) Bye.